It records for us the way in which the Babylonian Empire ended. It tells us about the fulfillment of the first part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the transition from the head of gold to the chest and arms of silver, from the Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, about 37 years have passed since the events at the end of chapter 4. After he learned the lesson that heaven rules, uh, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for about 14 years. He's now been dead for about 23 years, and during those 23 years, Babylon has had five kings. Most of them experienced untimely deaths. One was killed by his brother-in-law, another was killed in battle, another was killed by his uncle, and the king who is presently on the scene is mentioned to us in verse 1, Belshazzar. Now, historical accounts indicate that the king of Babylon at this point in time was a fellow by the name of Nabonidus. The Bible says it was Belshazzar, and critics have come along and said, see, the Bible's wrong. But in recent discoveries of historical relics from Babylon, we have discovered that Nabonidus was in fact the king of Babylon, but he made his eldest son, Belshazzar, to be co-regent. And they reigned together for 14 years. During the final 10 years of their reign together, Nabonidus spent much of his time in the city of Tema in northern Arabia, leaving the central administration to his son, Belshazzar, in Babylon. So not only is the scripture accurate, it is specifically accurate. If you come down to verse 16 of chapter 5, last part of that verse, Belshazzar offers Daniel to be third ruler in the kingdom. Now why does he offer him third ruler in the kingdom? Because he can't offer him anything higher. Because technically he is the second ruler and he gives Daniel the third rulership. And so again, we see scripture is very specific about this. Nabonidus was king, so was Belshazzar at this point in time. Now, chapter 5 is similar to chapter 4 in that it's the story about a Babylonian king. However, chapter 4 was an autobiography. Chapter 5 is a biography. Chapter 4 end with a, ended with a happy ending. Chapter 5 ends with a sad one. This is a story about the king whose infamous party coined the phrase that we still use 25 centuries later, the handwriting on the wall. Now I want to point out six things in this chapter about King Belshazzar. Number one, his folly. Number two, his fear. Number three, his forgetfulness. Number four, his failure. Number five, his fortune. And number six, his fate. First of all, the king's folly in verses one to four. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Belshazzar has a great feast. He brings a thousand of his nobles in for this feast. Now, this was not unusual. Historical records show us how kings often had feasts for as many as 15,000 people at a time. What was unusual at this point in time was the adverse circumstances, because at this time, Babylon was at war with the Medes and the Persians, and they were losing. In fact, just a few days before this, Nabonidus had taken his troops north and was defeated in a city by the name of Sipar, and at this very point in time, he is fleeing toward the southwest from the Medes and the Persians. So it seems like a strange time to be having a party. 
The Medes and the Persians have taken over most of the province of Babylon. They are now surrounding the city of Babylon, and he's given a feast. This would be like Saddam Hussein having a feast in the final days of the Gulf War. The only exception is that Belshazzar is inside the walls of Babylon. And the Medes and the Persians didn't have aircraft, and they didn't have smart bombs. And you remember last week that we said that the walls were 387 feet tall and 87 feet wide. So these are big walls. And he's inside the walls, and he's convinced that no army can come against his fortress. In fact, one historical writer said that they had stockpiled enough food and provisions to last the entire city for 20 years. Now, that seems like an exaggeration, but at least they were ready to stay inside the city and wait out the Medes and the Persians. And so the enemy is at the doorstep, but it's a big step. And to show just how confident he is that they can't get to him, Belshazzar throws a feast for his leaders. And I'm sure his goal is to boost their morale and to reassure their faith in their gods. Verse 2, when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem in order that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. When he tasted the wine, I assume that means when he got a little bit inebriated, he did something that he wouldn't have done otherwise. He brings in the gold and silver vessels that were taken out of the temple of God by Nebuchadnezzar, and we read about that back in chapter 1 and verse 2. Now, if you're paying attention, you'll notice in verse 2 that Nebuchadnezzar is called the father of Belshazzar. He was actually the grandfather of Belshazzar. Belshazzar's mother was Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. But in the Aramaic language, just like in the Hebrew language, there is no word for grandfather or grandson. So they referred to all their ancestors as father. So he brings in the vessels that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had brought from the temple in Jerusalem. His reason, as we're given at the end of verse 2, was that they were going to drink out of them. Now, why does he do this? Well, I think, number one, he wants to entertain his guests. I mean, it would be pretty impressive to be drinking wine out of a gold vessel. I think he also wanted to mock the God of Israel. He wanted to build up the confidence of his own people by laughing at a foreign god. The only problem was that the Medes and the Persians worshipped the same gods that the Babylonians did. So they chose to pick on a god that neither one of them shared, and so he picked on the god of the Hebrews. We will use these vessels, and we will mock that god, and at the same time, I will remind my leaders that of the victories of the past. Now, if you remember, in our study through this book, in chapter 3 and verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar had made a decree that anyone who spoke offensively against the God of the Hebrews was to be torn limb from limb and have his house turned into a dung pile. But Belshazzar ignores that edict because he is now the king. And so he wants to entertain his guests. He wants to mock the God of the Hebrews. And I think there's a third reason he does that, and that is to honor his own gods. Verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Apparently, he took the gold vessels and he used them to toast his gods. 
And it says they praised their God, so I assume there was music, and they were singing to their gods, and all the while, he was taunting the God of Israel. That would be equivalent to someone walking in here when we're having a communion service, walking up the aisle, taking one of the little cups of juice and throwing it out on the ground, filling it with a shot of whiskey and saying, here's a toast to the devil. That's what he's doing. He's taking the, the sacred vessels out of the temple of God and using those to worship and praise his false gods. And there's the king's folly. Second point is the king's fear, verses 5 to 9. Verse 5 says, Suddenly the fingers of a man, a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Now this was a huge banquet room. The archaeologist Coldaway, who excavated Babylon, found a room in the palace complex that was 56 feet wide and 173 feet long. It had a niche in one of the long walls opposite the entrance where we would think that the king probably sat. And it was made out of white plaster, which would make this writing stand out on the walls. And since they didn't have lighting like we do today, this grand hall would have to be lighted with just candles and torches and so our verse tells us specifically that it was over against the lampstand that the writing took place. In other words, it was in a place on the wall where it was well lit, perhaps the very niche where the king was seated. And so if that's the case, the king was probably toasting his gods as behind him on the wall, this writing begins to take place. And the verse tells us that this hand, or literally the fingers of a hand, emerged that is they came out and so the picture here is not that they had just appeared it's that they came out of the plaster and they began to write on the wall now that's certainly a way to break up a party and I can imagine as people saw this they initially thought how much have I drank you know and they look around to see if anybody else is noticing what's going on here but we're told specifically that the king noticed and we have his reaction in verse 6. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. The courage that he hoped to get from his wine and from his gods quickly left him. And Belshazzar must have set a record for sobriety. He is sober at this point in time. Gone is the smirk. Gone is the defiant look. Gone is the rosy glow from the wine. And the passage tells us his face was ashen white. I'm sure the music stopped. The merriment stopped. The only thing you could hear in that room was his knees knocking together. And it, it indicates that he, that he couldn't even stand or sit because it says uh, his hips were loose. They were slack. He was kind of somewhere in between. He kind of looked like a boxer who was knocked out on his feet, but he wasn't swaying because he was drunk. He was swaying out of fear. Verse 7, The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. He brought in the wise men. He says, Here's the incentive. If you can interpret this, I will dress you in purple, the color of royalty. I'll give you a gold necklace around your neck, and I will make you third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 8, 
Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Now, I must say, these guys are consistent. Because we have seen 70 years of Babylonian rule, and they have not come up with one answer yet. Verse 9. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. While his nobles are standing around saying, I wonder what that says, we're told that the king became even more alarmed. Why was he more alarmed? Well, I think because he knew if his wise men couldn't tell him what that said, then that means that someone other than his gods wrote it on the wall. That's the fear of the king, which brings us to the third point, and that is the king's forgetfulness, verses 10 to 16. Verse 10 says, The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. Now, the queen here is not the wife of Belshazzar. We know that because if you go back to verse 3, it says Belshazzar already had all his wives there. So when the queen comes in, this is, we would assume, his mother, the queen, the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. History tells us her name was Nicotris, and she says at the end of verse 10, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. She even sounds like a mother. She comes in and says, calm down. And then she goes on in verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were given to him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because of an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanations of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. As King Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, she had seen her father grovel around like an animal for seven years until he finally humbled himself before the God of heaven. And she had learned well that when you meet a time of confusion, you better go get Daniel. And so that's what she says on this occasion to her son. Now, why wasn't Daniel there in the first place? Well, some have suggested that maybe Daniel was in semi-retirement because if we add up the figures, Daniel is just about 80 years old at this point in time. But I don't think Daniel was ready to retire. And the reason I say that is if you go to the last verse of chapter 8, you'll find that he was still in the administration at that point in time, and that really takes us back 10 years to when he was 70 years old. When we come to chapter 6, we're going to find in the new administration, when he's in his 80s, he distinguished himself as one of the key elite leaders in the Medo-Persian Empire. And in that same chapter, it was in his 80s that he was thrown into the lion's den. So Daniel is not ready for retirement. I think the better solution is that in the, in the succession of these five kings, Daniel had been removed at some point from his place of leadership among the wise men and relegated to a lesser position in the kingdom. And so the queen has to come and remind the king about him and encourage him to bring Daniel in. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah whom my father the king has brought from Judah? Are you the Daniel I'm looking for? Are you the Daniel that was brought by Nebuchadnezzar 
from Judah. Now, that tells me a couple things. Number one, it tells me that Belshazzar isn't as stupid as he looks because he includes some information in his question that the queen doesn't even tell him, which indicates that he knew more about Daniel than he acted like he knew. Are you the one who came from Judah? And secondly, it tells us that his conscience is still working because he says, are, particularly, are you the one who was brought from Judah? And when he mentions Judah, he's got to be making the connection between the fact that he has just disgraced the vessels that came from the temple in Jerusalem in Judah. And so his point is, are you Daniel from Judah? Because I got a little guilt on my mind right now. I just disgraced the God of Judah. Verse 14. Now I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. I've heard about you, Daniel. Verse 15, just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. I brought in the wise men and they struck out. Verse 16, but I personally have heard about you that you were able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar gives him the only incentive he knows how to give. I'll give you position, possessions, and power. Now, it's got to be interesting at this point in time from Daniel's perspective because he has been removed from his place of leadership in the Babylonian Empire. He's been relegated to some other position. He's sort of been forgotten. And now, all of a sudden, he's brought back on the center stage. And I love the comment that the English preacher Joseph Parker makes on this verse. He says, preachers of the word, you will be wanted someday by Belshazzar. You were not at the beginning of the feast, but you will be there before the banquet hour is closed. The king will not ask you to drink wine, but he will ask you to tell the secret of his pain and heal the malady of his heart. Just wait your time, preachers. You are nobody now. Who cares for preachers and teachers and seers and men of insight while the wine goes around and the feast is unfolding its tempting luxuries? But the preacher will have his opportunity. They will send for him when all other friends have failed. May he then come fearlessly, independently, asking only to be a channel through which divine communication can be addressed. Then may he speak to the listening trouble of the world. And I would broaden that to include all Christians. Just wait your time, it will come. The Belshazzars of this world may not be looking at you today, but they will be. And so it may seem that the world has forgotten you. That will not go on. There will be a time when they have a need and they will call for you. And so I would say to you, be faithful even when you seem to be forgotten because there may be a time in the future when God will bring you back to center stage. Well, that's the king's forgetfulness. Fourth point is the king's failure, verses 17 to 23. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Now, what's interesting to me here is that Daniel does not address the king with a formal salutation. The queen came in in verse 10 and said, O king, live forever. Daniel doesn't bother with any of that. And I think he does so for a couple reasons. Number one, Daniel holds Belshazzar in contempt because he has just desecrated 
the sacred vessels of God. And number two, it would hardly seem appropriate to say, O king, live forever to a king who wasn't even going to survive the night. And I think that's probably the same reason why Daniel says, hey, keep your gifts. <laughs> you know, you're going to make me third ruler in a kingdom that's going downhill fast. You just keep it. You don't have to give me any incentives to tell you the truth of God. And that's what he goes on to do, verse 18. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. Nebuchadnezzar had complete sovereignty. Whomever he wanted to, he killed. Whomever he wanted to, he spared. Whomever he wanted to, he humbled. Whomever he wanted to, he exalted. And Daniel says, God gave him that sovereignty. Verse 20, But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. When he became proud, when he acted arrogantly, God took it all away. Verse 21, He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he sets it over whomever he wishes. God gave him a seven-year course in humility. And he finally realized that the Most High is the ruler over mankind, and he gives it out to whomever he wishes. Now, I imagine at this point in time, Belshazzar is probably sitting there thinking, old man, get to it. I mean, I didn't bring you here to give me a sermon. I gave you here, brought you here to tell me what this writing means on the wall. And Daniel's giving him this sermon, giving him the history of Nebuchadnezzar. But he finally gets to the point in verse 22. He says, yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though... You knew all this. You know, you have to wonder why it is that God didn't give a warning to Belshazzar. You have to wonder why it is that he didn't send him out to eat grass for seven years. You have to wonder that when he cut down Belshazzar's tree, why he didn't leave the stump. And I think the answer is right here in verse 22. It says, you have not humbled yourself even though you knew all this. You had the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, this living lesson right in front of you, and even though you knew all that, you never took it to heart. Maybe you're sitting here today and you've got a grandfather who has a testimony. Maybe you've got a father or a mother who has a testimony somewhat like Nebuchadnezzar's. They got their tree chopped down, but God left their stump. But maybe as you sit here today, you have never humbled your heart and bowed your knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't have a testimony. Well, let me tell you something very sobering. God may not give you a warning either. He may simply give you the handwriting on the wall. He may not knock you off your throne for seven years. He may simply give you all he gave Belshazzar, and that is the final words, it's over. He says to Belshazzar, 
even though you knew all this. You didn't humble yourself. Verse 23, But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hands are your life, breath, and your ways you have not glorified. Now that's an indictment. To say that you have not humbled yourself is an understatement. You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. You have mocked him by drinking wine out of his holy vessels. You have praised the God of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And then Daniel adds that little parenthesis. They are deaf, dumb, and blind. And the God who holds your next breath, you haven't glorified. You have taken the breath he's given you, and you've mocked him with it which is the king's failure. And that brings us to the fifth point, the king's fortune, verses 24 to 29. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Daniel says, this hand you saw on the wall is from God. Now, that should have been pretty obvious because he just said that Belshazzar's gods couldn't see, hear, or understand, so they certainly can't write. So he says, this hand is from God, and he's written this, and here's what it means, verse 25. This is the inscription that was written out, meeny, meeny, tekel, you farson. Three words in Aramaic, one is repeated. We're not really told why no one else could read this, because what Daniel says here is in Aramaic, their common language, meeny, meeny, tekel, you farson. Some have suggested that maybe it was written in cuneiform. Some suggest that maybe it was just the consonants without the vowels. Some suggest that maybe it was written vertically rather than horizontally. We're not told. Daniel just says, here's what it says. Meeny, meeny, tekel, you farson. And then he gives the interpretation in verse 26. This is the interpretation of the message. Meeny. Meeny means numbered. God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. Meeny, numbered. God has numbered your kingdom, and your number's up. Second word is tekel, verse 27. That word means weighed. You have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Numbered, you've been numbered, and your number's up. Weighed, you've been weighed, and you're too light. And then he comes to the third word, and that is perez, verse 28. If you'll notice in verse 25, it's euphorson. The letter U means and. Farson is the plural. Perez, which he interprets in verse 28, is a singular form, and that word means broken or divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. What's interesting is he has a little pun here because that word Perez also means Persian. So he says your kingdom has been broken and given over to the Medes and the Persians. So you're numbered, and your number's up. You're weighed, and you don't measure up. You're broken, and given over to the Persians. That's the message, real simple. Now apparently it didn't soak in, because if you look at verse 29, it says, Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple, and put a necklace of gold around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. 
Daniel says, your time is up, and he says, all right, come up here, and he, and he puts the purple on him, and he puts the gold around his neck, and he makes him third ruler in the kingdom. I don't know what he's thinking. Maybe he's thinking, you know, if I let Daniel be the ruler, maybe God won't bring this judgment upon us. You know, it kind of reminds us of the honors of this world because they're awful short-lived. One night, Daniel was king for a day. Which brings us to the sixth and final point, and that is the king's fate in verses 30 and 31. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. Now, that night was October 11th, 539 B.C., and the historian Herodotus records how it happened. He says, Cyrus took half his troops up the Euphrates River to a swamp area, and there they built a canal to divert the river Euphrates out of its banks. And when they did so, it caused the water to recede that went under the wall of the city of Babylon. And when that water receded, the Medo-Persian army came through the riverbed into the city of Babylon and overtook the city and killed Belshazzar. And verse 31 records, So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And this is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in chapter 2, that Babylon would be replaced by the Medo-Persians. Now let me share with you something real interesting. When the water receded in the Euphrates River, it very well may have exposed something that was placed there 54 years earlier. And I want to show you what that was. Go to Jeremiah chapter 51. Jeremiah 51. Last part of that chapter. King Zedekiah was going to Babylon. It was 593 B.C. He was taking with him one of his major subordinates by the name of Sariah. And as they were going, Jeremiah gave Sariah an assignment. He, he gave him a scroll, and he says, when you get to Babylon, I want you to read this scroll. Verse 61, as soon as you come to Babylon, then see that you read all these words aloud. Verse 63, and it will come about as soon as you finish reading this scroll, you will tie a stone to it and throw it into the middle of the Euphrates. Sariah goes to Babylon 54 years before the event we're reading about in Daniel chapter 5. He reads a scroll. After he's finished reading it, he ties a rock to it and throws it in the Euphrates, and it sinks to the bottom. Now, what was on the scroll? Verse 60. So Jeremiah wrote in a single scroll all the calamity which would come upon Babylon, that is, all these words which have been written concerning Babylon. He wrote on the scroll what was going to happen to Babylon. Now, I want to show you what he wrote. Go back in chapter 51 to verse 11. Sharpen the arrows, fill the quivers. The Lord has aroused the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose is against Babylon to destroy it, for it is the vengeance of the Lord, vengeance for his temple. On this scroll is written who will overcome Babylon, the Medes. Not only that, but also on this scroll, he told how it was going to happen. Look at verse 36. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am going to plead your case and exact full vengeance for you. I shall dry up her broad river and make her fountain dry, and Babylon will become a heap of ruins. How's it going to happen? Dry up the broad river. 
When's it going to happen? One more verse, verse 57. And I shall make her princes and her wise men drunk, her governors, her prefects, and her mighty men, that they may sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake up, declares the king whose name is the Lord of hosts. When's it going to happen? It's going to happen during a drunken party. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? 54 years before this, Jeremiah writes this down. He didn't get to see it because he died 35 years before it happens, but he writes down who's going to do it, the Medes, how they're going to do it by drying up the river, and when they're going to do it during a drunken party. And so as the Medo-Persian army comes into Babylon, they're walking right over this scroll that records the words of what is going to happen on that eventful night. Belshazzar thought he was in control of his destiny. He thought he was secure behind the walls of his citadel. In fact, he was so confident that as he sat there, he mocked the God of heaven, not realizing what Daniel says in verse 23, that God held his breath and God held his ways in his hand. And to prove that, God not only wrote his destiny on the walls, God wrote his destiny on a scroll that had been lying in the river Euphrates for 54 years. His kingdom was numbered, weighed, and broken. Maybe as you sit here today, you think that you're in control of your destiny. Maybe you feel pretty secure behind the walls of your citadel. And maybe you're mocking God with the vessels of his temple. You say, well, I know I'm not doing that. Well, maybe you are, because the Bible says... Our bodies are his temple and we are his vessels. So if you are using his vessel for everything but glorifying him, you are just like Belshazzar. You are exalting yourself and worshiping the gods of silver and gold. Why not realize today that he holds your life breath and he holds your ways. Why not glorify him today? Why not sober up and read your handwriting on the wall? You know what it says? Numbered, weighed, and broken. We got the same message Belshazzar does, but we have the beautiful privilege of taking that brokenness and giving it to the Lord Jesus and letting him make something beautiful out of that.